Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who had such a lovely day Sunday. I mean, the sun was out, right? The sun was out 60. And so then, beautiful. Oh, so gorgeous. And then in the yard and just those simple moments, mm. especially when, you know, things seem to be so chaotic. Mm-hmm. And just to be in that grounded, simple pleasures. And that's the, the yard and the sanctuary and knowing in Minnesota that spring is on the way. <laughs> Um, and, and today, very pleased to have in studio with us a dynamic duo, Russ Henry and Chesney Enquist, are here to talk about how and why to avoid pesticides in the landscape. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us today. Great. So you guys are the owners of Minnehaha Falls Landscaping, an organic landscaping company. You're also founders of Be Safe Minneapolis, an advocacy organization that works to expand habitat and eliminate eliminate pesticides throughout Minnesota. And Chesney and Russ are also co-chairs of the Minneapolis Park Pesticide Advisory Committee. And together they help communities, businesses, schools, churches, parks, and home landscape transition to organic. Today, uh, Russ and Chesney have come by to help us understand how to stay safe from pesticides um, being used in Minneapolis um, parks this spring and summer. And I'll be asking them to share some of their secrets on how we transition our yards. How do we go organic in our lawns and gardens? And also, Chesney, um, I, write, I understand that you've been elected the newly elected chair of the um, uh, co-chair of the Minneapolis Park and Pesticide Advisory Committee. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. And thanks so much for having us, Laura. It's awesome to talk with you today and reach out to your listeners and talk about the good things in life, bird song and happy <laughs> yards, right? Yeah, let's talk about the good things in life. And, and, and sometimes it takes a lot of work to get those good things. You guys have been working on pesticides in the park for a long, long time. And so now you're elected the co-chair of the advisory group. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a really humbling experience. I'm, I'm very honored to serve in the role. It's been something that Russ and I and a, a huge coalition of neighbors really have been working to organize to understand pesticide use in the parks, understand how we can learn more, and understand how we can transition. Great. Um, and so um, uh, so why? Why is, why, why, do you, why is pesticides in the park an issue? Well, uh, public spaces, you know, are places where folks go and they expect to be safe. And so what we're learning and what we're understanding is that, you know, pesticides are being, being used in the parks, in ball fields, golf courses, around bodies of water. And, you know, these are places where people go to play and recreate and be outdoors. And so when we're learning that there's risk to toxic exposure in these locations, we need to be communicating with folks on why is that happening? How is that ha- happening? And is there something we can do differently? Absolutely. Uh, you know, everybody goes to the parks. And um, we know that children have special windows of vulnerability where uh, during their developmental stages um, – if we if they're exposed to certain toxins that are present in some of the chemicals used in the parks, um, that could be uh, very dangerous for their development. So why take the risk? Mm-hmm. Why take the risk? Well, Especially because I need to have really perfect grass. <laughs> no, well, no. see, that's the thing is I I know we can have really perfect grass organically. Uh-huh. Without the pesticides, as long as we focus on soil health, and I know this because that's what Chesney and I do. Cool, cool. Right, because it's not it's not like I have to choose one way or this means that everything's, you know, bare spots, which is one of the problems with dandelions. You can right. still have thick, um, comfortable spaces that work on bare feet. 
Right, absolutely. When your soil is very healthy, you have a much thicker lawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, this isn't about compromise or giving up an aesthetic. It's just about changing the habits of uh, your lawn management or the people who are managing your lawn. And um, so, um, so eliminating pesticides where kids play first. So, ball fields, golf courses, and in and around bodies of water. Yes. So uh, that's really been the focus of the work that Chesney and I have been doing on the Parks Pesticide Advisory Committee. Uh, In Minneapolis, unfortunately, we're still using pesticides in premier ball fields. And and that's where little leagues get, you know, they rent those spaces out. So we've got kids going around in these spaces, you know, where we're using pesticides. We also use fungicides, insecticides, and um, herbicides in golf courses. And uh, all of our golf courses are along bodies of water in Minneapolis. Um, We also have youth golf leagues that go into these spaces. So it's been a very, uh, you know, a source of deep concern for the community um, to have these kind of large areas. And that's what we've been working on is to try to eliminate space by space. Yeah, I, I mean, I think something that is safe to say is on everyone's mind is, you know, paths to exposure and risk to sensitive populations. And when we look at that uh, on a day-to-day basis in these public spaces, what we're, t- what we're talking about as far as the work of the committee, as Russ has mentioned, is identifying those spaces and identifying ways to eliminate that risk to exposure in those spaces. Right, because some chemical exposure, somebody can walk right by it, but there are those of us that are so sensitive, mm-hmm. they feel it right away. Right. I mean, I know I, I know people like that, and it's, it's, it's painful because they almost can't be in public spaces, which is the best place they should be that, that they need for their own mm-hmm. body system, right? Mm-hmm. And so those chemicals can be bad. So tell us, what is the advisory committee and how does it, um, what, kind of, what kind of work does it do? Yeah, great. Uh, It's a group of citizens and experts. Uh, Some have been appointed by commissioners. Some have been uh, enlisted by staff members. And many are land care practitioners with various backgrounds. So folks from water, um, watershed districts, naturalist groups, um, and then, of course, a few regenerative land care practitioners as well. Mm -hmm. And so over the first year, really, the committee was charged to um, help create uh, an initial set of recommendations. That's what the committee's focused on in in the first year, broke into uh, working groups that focused on these different uh, management areas, natural spaces, wetlands, gardens, uh, ball fields, athletic fields, golf courses. Um, Each are managed by different divisions of the park board and different groups within the staff. So what we're really working on is identifying the uses in those spaces, and then what can we come up with for alternatives? And as far as those alternatives go, it's really exciting that we've got a pilot project started for organic golf at Snelling Golf Course this year. Uh, We've got a plan laid out there for that. We've also got a pilot started in our park system for organic ball fields at one of our premier ball fields at the Neiman Sports Complex. So very exciting that we're beginning a transition there. And um, the goal now is to make sure that the park system, including the park commissioners and staff, uh, adopt the strategies that we're learning as we're 
performing this pilot, so that the pilot is not just something we did to feel good, but also, but actually leading to systemic change. And people can come look at the pilot and then see for themselves how the organic processes. Uh, our, our work exactly, and then we we actually have another a third pilot in the school system, and so the schools have premier fields as well, and um, there we have a pilot at Franklin Middle School, very exciting um, pilot for their soccer and football field there, and uh, the school system already has been taking the learnings from the pilot there and trying to move forward with the transition system. Wide. It's really exciting. I really thank you guys for all the work you've done on this issue. It's great. And, I mean, to just remind our audience, like Roundup is something that's still sold in all these stores. It was so common. Three juries looked at the issue and huge evidence mm-hmm. that this stuff is not safe. Even right. though it's so common, it's just not safe. So let's talk about some of the specific pesticides. 2,4-D. So what's 2,4-D? Great question. That one is an herbicide. It's used – it's one of the most commonly used uh, herbicides in the Minneapolis park system. It's used on golf courses and ball fields. Um, it was also being used in Minneapolis schools and that's one we're transitioning away from there. Um, the National Resources Defense Council calls 2,4-D the most dangerous pesticide you've never heard of. So this is nothing to you know blink at. Um, we need to have a look at this. We're using it in ball fields and golf courses, even though researchers have observed apparent links between exposure to 2,4-D and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which we know is a blood cancer, as well as sarcoma, a soft tissue cancer. Um, there's more conclusive proof even that 2,4-D falls into a class of compounds that, that we think of as being endocrine-disrupting. Chemicals, compounds that mimic or inhibit the body's hormones. Uh, laboratory studies are suggesting that 2,4-D can impede the normal action of estrogen, androgen, and other hormones. So, because kid, while I was, you know, I was talking about how kids are developing, mm-hmm. and they have these special windows of vulnerability, especially around hormonal development, it is critical that they're not exposed, even in small. Doses. And, you know, the side of the package says, hey, don't worry about it after a couple hours, no big deal. But it's – we're finding out through science that it's these small doses that can have an, an enormous impact on children's health. And not to speak of health of the natural world. I mean the mm. chemicals we use and we know Roundup has been very bad for uh, butterfly populations and – um, so, uh, and then another um, chemical is tri- triclopyr. Triclopyr. And um, sometimes called triclopyr or triclopyr. This is uh, one of our other most commonly used herbicides in the park system. They're using it to control invasive species. And um, before I say too much about it, I do want to say that. The good news is we don't have to use these chemicals to control invasive species. Robert's Bird Sanctuary for over 10 years in Minneapolis in one of our parks has been controlling without the use of any herbicides. And, um, you know, I am excited to uh, have learned some of their special techniques. And that's awesome. This could be a great thing. We're going to come back and talk about what about buckthorn? Can we take care of buckthorn without chemicals? Because that's an issue. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. In studio with us are the owners of Minnehaha Landscaping. And uh, we're going to be taking a short break. We'll be back.
welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund. In studio with us is the dynamic duo, Russ Henry and Chesney Enquist, and uh, they are the owners of Minnehaha Fall Landscaping, an all-organic landscaping company. And when we were on a break, we were going to talk about all-natural um, solutions to invasive species management. So tell us again about this chemical that's used in the parks to control um, buckthorn. Yeah, and this chemical, Triclopyr, has been found in um, Minnehaha Creek, just south or just downstream uh, of um, Lake Hiawatha. So that's something we should understand. It's been found at alarming levels, uh, alarming to the Minnesota uh, Pollution Control Agency. And so um, this chemical has been used all winter long around the shores of Bede Makoska, uh and as well uh, Lake Harriet and I believe some other bodies of water in the city in an attempt to um, eliminate buckthorn. Um, what we need to know about triclopyr is that in laboratory tests, triclopyr caused an increase in the incidence of breast cancer as well as an increase in a type of genetic damage called um, lethal, dominant lethal mutations. So um, triclopyr is uh, also damaging to kidneys, has caused a variety of reproductive problems. Um, we know in the environment that the ester form of triclopyr is highly toxic to fish, inhibits behaviors in frogs that help them avoid predators. This was the form that was used in um, – and, and, and we also need to understand that the park board got in trouble with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture for the use of triclopyr for this very reason because they used – you know, I'm going to put this in air quotes – the wrong – form of triclopyr near the body of water, up near the Minnehaha Creek, um, right at the top of the falls. Um, they sprayed it, and um, I was able to demonstrate to the Minnesota Department of Ag uh, the dead plants that were half in the water and half out, clearly demonstrating that they had used this in the, in the water. And so they got, um, you know, basically a letter telling them that they had uh, run afoul of the law. Uh, we know that triclopyr inhibits the growth of microbes. Mycorrhizal fungi, the beneficial fungi that you know all ninety-five percent of terrestrial plants need in order to have uh, nutrient cycling and protection from pathogens. So um, we also know triclopyr is mobile in soil, and it's contaminated wells, streams, rivers. Uh, contaminated water has been found, you know, all uh, where triclopyr is used in, in agriculture, in forestry. It's been contaminated water has been found in urban landscapes and golf courses from as a result of this. So. The question is, do we have a choice? Well, yes. <laughs> oh, no, I thought we just had to destroy our environment to survive, you know? <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. So, yes. Thank goodness we have a choice. And the choice was, again, demonstrated by Robert's Bird Sanctuary. And, Chesney, you were there. What did you think about Robert's Bird Sanctuary and their presentation? Well, the presentation is awesome, and thank you so much to that group of just so dedicated volunteers. Uh, the things I was most impressed by, I mean, in addition to the actual practice, so it's a mechanical practice that they're following. Um, it takes a couple of years, so does, you know, the method of chemical warfare against buckthorn. So what I appreciated about their methodology is that it was actually supportive to the soil health growth. Um, and... Really something else I want to highlight about it is that the model, this volunteer-based model, that they are organizing themselves, they have intergenerational 
engagement. So this is folks of all ages getting outdoors, caring for creation, enjoying each other and nature in the parks, and uh, you know managing for an unwanted species in this space in a way that will actually support you know the regrowth of nat- native plants uh, because we're not degrading the soil health. We're in fact supporting it as we are also managing for this species. Um, I, I remember years ago I heard a presentation, and so before um, um, uh, w- w- a natural forest would have 200, 300, 400 different birds that could survive. But buckthorn, it's like only four birds can survive in the buckthorn forest, right? So buckthorn is a big problem that we want to take care of. But what are the solutions that, that how, how, how you guys have a different way of taking care of buckthorn than using these chemicals? Because yes, I've heard people say you have to use the chemicals. It doesn't work unless you use the chemicals. So give us the step-by-step alternative to chemicals. Excellent. Thanks. Great question. And so it's pretty simple. Um, first and foremost, anything, any of the buckthorn plants that you find, and you do need to learn to identify it. Not all the plants are going to have thorns on them. And you want to get a field identification guide because buckthorn has strikingly similar leaves to some native cherry plants. So you don't want to go pulling out native cherry plants when you actually have those and and you're trying to get rid of buckthorn. So that's the first thing. Get a guide or look online. Um, And then next, anything that's under about an inch, you can easily pull or dig out, uh, especially if you use a tool called a weed wrench, which is an amazing tool for pulling out buckthorn. Anything under an inch comes right out of the ground. Uh, whenever you disturb the, sto- the soil, make sure that you replant with some native seeds or seedlings. And I just got to you know, right after a deep rain when the soil is really wet is a great time to pick weeds, right? Grab them because mm, yeah. they come out a lot easier. Right. Um, and uh, the other f- then, okay, so some of us have like, okay, great, Russ, you've got buckthorn under an inch. What about those big ones that have been there for 40 years and they're 10 inches across? What do you do? Well, what we do is at about chest height, we cut them off and then we we monitor them. And this is – it's very similar to what you do when you use chemicals because when you use chemicals, you cut them off just lower. You cut them off down at the base. Um, and then when you use chemicals, you put the chemicals on the base, uh, on the stump after you've cut it down. Instead here, what we're doing is we're leaving it at about chest height. And um, then we come back the second year, which you have to do when you use chemicals as well because they're not going to kill it always the first year. So you come back the second year and this time instead of using chemicals, again, what we're doing is we're looking for any new growth and we're cutting that off. And there's a series of kind of um, almost machete-like tools that make that very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you come back the third year, and by that time, the plant has had a really rough go of it. Its roots are shrunk considerably, and you can use shovels or um, what was that new shovel that they showed us? The root dominator or something like that. It was an awesome shovel. Pretty heavy duty. Yeah. Um, so there's some awesome cutting shovels you can use then to get those kind of big roots out. And so it's just about monitoring year after year um, on the bigger ones. So when you've got a two-inch plant, it's probably going to take you a couple years to kill that. you got a 10-inch plant, you might have to monitor that for a few years before it's gone. But the whole time then, it's not producing more fruit. It's not um, filling the forest. And and the entire time you should be out there then replanting, replanting with native plants. Yeah. And so what's, uh, what might be good to plant where uh, buckthorn was? Ah, ch- chestnut. <laughs> 
Uh, well, we've done a, a few really great projects with folks uh, that have some acreage with buckthorn on it. And after we've gone through to remove and then, you know, over the years, a couple of years time monitor those plants, we're putting in things like dogwood, viburnum. Serviceberry, sumac. Um, the just, service berries are great for birds. The birds just uh, love the service yeah, berries. Absolutely. Same with all the dogwoods. Uh, gray dogwood is incredible for birds. Um, you also want to have some birch out there in your landscape and some poplar because the bees are getting special um, resins off of both of those trees to help them. Um, so we're replacing with plants that would fill in that same height gap and fruit uh, for the birds, but be native plants. Be native plants. So we're talking all about landscaping, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, we're going to move it to our home background, backyard. So what can we do in our backyards that's friendly for bees, friendly for uh, butterflies, and friendly for us, and maybe even healthy, safe places for the kids to be, too. Nice. Yay. <laughs> Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio is Russ Henry and Chesney Edenquist. They are the owners of Minneaha Falls Landscaping. And we want to talk about parks some more, and how can people know that they're really safe in the parks? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I have to be honest, it's uh, one of the more challenging parts of this work is, you know, uh, helping raise awareness and letting folks know and receiving questions like, so is it safe for me to bring my kids to the park? And I have to take pause because I can't just say yes. I would love to say yes. I would love to say all park, you know, all park spaces are safe and free of pesticides. Um, but we know that that is not the case. And so uh, when we're talking about visiting the parks, what we know we can do is avoid spaces with um regular pesticide and herbicide applications. So some of those spaces would be golf courses for sure. Uh, premier athletic fields. So those are some of the fields where youth and adult leagues play. Uh, and we know we're using those in, in the different areas on those uh, ball fields. Uh, we're, as Russ mentioned, find, mentioned uh, finding these chemicals in waterways. And we know that triclopyr and other products are used around bodies of water um, for shoreline restoration efforts. So we might want to avoid actually swimming in the lakes and in the streams. Um, natural areas where other uh, restoration projects are going on. And then, you know, some of the gardens too, where we're working to, to manage weeds sometimes with chemicals. Yeah, I mean, just last year we came across the Annie Young Meadow, and Annie Young is a dearly departed mm -hmm. former commissioner in Minneapolis who led the original charge to reduce pesticide use and got the pesticides out, mostly out of the neighborhood parks. So our neighborhood parks in Minneapolis mostly don't have pesticides. But unfortunately, uh, in, in just, um, I don't even know how to say it, it was just so horrible to see, when we were driving past uh, the Annie Young Parkway, or Annie Young uh, Meadow, we noticed that um, it had been sprayed. So we stopped and we walked over in a large area. There were signs up in a large area of the of the meadow had been sprayed in order to eliminate some type of grass that was there. Um, so just to see this even on the namesake of the original, you know, pesticide, anti-pesticide crusader in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. to see this um, uh, 
you know, this kind of desecration of the of her name and space there was, you know, with the use of these chemicals was awful. When, when of course, again, there are alternatives. You know, in a space like that, they could have come in with physical means to remove those invaders and and planted uh, plenty of very strong Minnesota natives to take over. So, you know, it, some of these spaces. You know, we do really want to be careful about golf courses. I've heard a lot of folks tell me that they've received rashes Mm -hmm. after touching the grass on the golf course. And if there's a fungicide used that day, which, you know, we have a lot of fungal problems on our golf courses in Minneapolis because they're all built on formal wetlands. So there are, you know, lots of fungi in the soil. Dollar spot is very common on the golf courses, you know. Well, and all of these chemicals, 50 or 60 chemicals now being used in the park department. I know there was another national story. I kind of wish I had the details right in front of me. But globally, uh, fertility rates on humans are really suffering. And a lot of people are looking at the chemicals. And we saw that movie together. I hope you can remember the name about the golf course. that uh, Ground Wars. Ground Wars. And we had him in studio um, about that, too. Andrew Nisker, yes. Yes, he was tracking uh, how these golf courses and their cancer rates. Right. around these golf courses right. and it's not necessary right. it's, right. Not, it's necessary. not necessary it's, it's just it's just so i mean one thing i'm really trying to be in my own life is kind and sane while seeking truth okay. <laughs> and that's hard yeah. but i mean because it's just it's insane and it's so unkind to be using a mm. billion pounds of pesticides every year get, gets used in the united yeah. states well and the unkindness is part and parcel of the kind of temperament of, um, it seems like, of folks who really want to make sure that we're using these pesticides. So right now, you know, Chesney and I are being attacked in local newspapers as being alarmist, uh, as as uh, using alarming words like toxic when describing these chemicals that they're using in the parks. And I don't know how else to describe them when their own bottles, their own labels <laughs> on the bottles say they're toxic. And and the fact of the matter is, you know, calling people names doesn't really help. It doesn't help. We could be focusing on transition. We could be focusing on learning together. We could mm-hmm. be focusing mm-hmm. on building a, um, a a community around transition, so that uh, we can we can carry this you know this new organic landscaping kind of methodologies throughout the Twin Cities. Right, throughout the Twin Cities. And I'd love to get into the heart of this because it's also a way of thinking. So let's move to what we do in our own yards right now. So how do we even start? Well, uh, Chesney is actually a expert in um, garden management, organic garden management. Uh, and um, so maybe you want to jump on that right away. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I love talking with our clients about or folks that we're consulting with or community members who have questions about their spaces is low impact gardening. It's low impact in that we are uh, reducing the number of inputs, certainly no chemical inputs. Um, And we're also creating spaces that are generating habitat and that are low maintenance because they, you know, thrive on their own and they thrive on the engagement with the wildlife. So um, one of the main things that we uh, talk about as we're educating and engaging um, is soil health. And we know that soil health is at the foundation of healthy pollinator habitat, healthy water, and also carbon sequestration in our soils. So if we can get all of those things going on in our backyards, then we can start to create as neighbors contiguous habitat um, that allows the wildlife to thrive and allows us to you know, have broad swaths of health in our communities. So how do I make my soil healthy? 
Great question. So uh, we know that one of the main or the largest compacting event in nature is uh, rain on bare soil. So one of the things we really want to focus on to eliminate creating compaction and runoff is to keep the ground covered. So we can use uh, plants. We like to call that living mulch, which, again, if you're thinking about low impact and low cost too, right, Uh, low effort as well, because if I've got some living mulch uh, covering my soil, I don't have to replenish that wood mulch year after year. So then after you start talking about ground covers and you get into that living mulch, maybe walkable spaces, I'm sure Russ will talk a little bit more about bee lawns as well, is we start to understand that all layers of the canopy are covering the soil in a different capacity, right? And so then we also start to focus on the root depth and sequestering that carbon along those roots, filtering the water along those roots, and stabilizing the soil structure with native plants. Which is the other thing that's such a bummer about the popularity of, of grass, um, mm-hmm. because its roots are so kind of shallow. shallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in fact, as Chesney mentioned, bee lawns are a great new way to transition lawns to being a space that's a lot more healthy. Deeper roots, uh, multiple types of plants in the in the lawn space, a lot less maintenance so we can take more time in the hammock during the summer, <laughs> do the things that we need to do like that. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if everybody uh, out there knows about what bee lawns no. are, so maybe I'll just kind of briefly describe that. A bee lawn includes um, grasses, and it could include your your normal Kentucky bluegrass, but you know, a lot of times we're putting in a native fescue grass, which grows about the same height as a lawn grass, maybe about five or six inches tall, and um, kind of lays over a little bit. It's got a lovely look to it, but then. And no matter what kind of grass you have in it, the big thing that's important to have in your bee lawn is some white clover. White clover, and that's all over the place. Like we see it in you know, any yards that aren't treated with herbicide, it usually shows up. It's a great plant, feeds over 50 species of native bees. The um, other one that they're adding in that's really exciting to the bee lawn mix is called self-heal, Prunella vulgaris. Great plant, feeds another 25 species of native bees. So with the two, you're getting around 75 native bee species being fed in a bee lawn. You can get the bee lawn mix Mm -hmm. from uh, Twin City Seed. That's where we get ours. They also include a creeping thyme in the mix that has a, does well in sunny spaces. And the white clover does really well in the shade. The grass can go, uh, the fescue grass in the mix can go sun or shade. The way we like to blend it into the soils, into the lawns, is with an aerate and overseed. So our services will go around and aerate and overseed three times per season. If folks want a bee lawn mix, then we'll add that in with the aeration overseed seeding. If instead they'd rather just have it be a green lawn but treated organically, then aerate and overseed is still very important. But we uh, don't, of course, use the bee lawn mix. We just use their standard lawn mix for that. So any way you go, we really want to start introducing more aeration overseeding into lawn areas. And especially if we can, moving towards bee lawns. When you have a bee lawn, you get blooms in the lawn. And you know, as a landscaper, I've been asked by folks who have, you know, recently moved to America who've said to me, one person said to me, hey, um, how come some of the lawns are 
just plain green, and then some of them are filled with purple and yellow and all these amazing flowers. And that perspective really changed my perspective. It opened me up to see, yeah, you know, those flowers are beautiful in the lawn, and we should be encouraging them. They're not only beautiful to look at, they're holistically good for the soil, for our bodies, for the planet, for the pollinators. They're beautiful. Yay. I love it. I love it. I love it. And if somebody wants, they can call you and you will come and help them change their lawn into a bee lawn. That's your business. That's one thing we love to do. Organic lawns, bee lawns, and uh, pollinator garden restoration and installation. Do you use any chemicals for any reason? Nope. Absolutely not. Never. We're 100% organic. And um, as the founder of the company, I decided uh, when I started my first landscaping company, Giving Tree Gardens, which is still operating, um, when we started that, I said, you know, I'm not going to use any pesticides in this company because I don't want to expose my workers to risk. I don't want to expose my clients to risk. And I don't want to expose the environment to unknown risks. And the more I've learned about it over time, uh, I have just been really glad that I made that decision a long time ago. Yeah, tell us some of your personal backgrounds. How long have you been working? What's your professional background? You want sure, yeah. Well, uh, my background is actually in mechanical engineering. So I love bringing that to the environmental work uh, because it makes some of these equations so simple, right? Like the minimizing the risk, maximizing the abundance in habitat, um, and then just getting to work with the beautiful art of nature and, and learning what plants are going to be beneficial. My background growing up at a wilderness camp, Camp Ajua on Lake Linwood, um, you know, it was a really rustic experience where we got to unplug for a month of summer. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of pop culture go by when you get home and you realize that, you know, you had the opportunity. And every day I'm more grateful for that experience because I realized that that's where I learned to cultivate a connection to the earth and that that's one of my main values that I live to this day. Uh, I'm nowhere near as cool as Justney. <laughs> but um, I grew up gardening with my mom and um, she helped us uh, started learning how to grow tomatoes when I was a little kid. All right. kinda sprung we up come back there. for our last <laughs> segment. We're talking with the owners of Minneapolis Falls Landscaping. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Uh, I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with us is the, are the owners of Minnehaha Falls Landscaping, Chesney Enquist and Russ Henry. And um, it's okay to have a meltdown right now, isn't it? It's it, meltdown it's is it's good time. Can't be helped. It can't be helped. It's time for a meltdown. It's time for a meltdown. Everything's melting down out there. And, right. and uh, once you melt down, then you spring back. Right. right. And that's what we're talking about. It was actually the snow meltdown. Um, and so, um, but tell us again. A little bit more. So this is a great time now to be thinking about what we do with our yards. How would people contact you? What kind of what kind of process do you use and what kind of services do you offer? Thanks. Great question. Yeah. Uh, now is a great time to be planning for the year's landscape and, and what's going to happen during the growing season. We love to start folks off with a consultation on site. We can uh, either our um, landscape architect, Tom Kirby, can come out and visit you on site. He is amazing. Um, and if you don't need a design, then also, uh, you know, Chesney or I could come out and walk you through organic landscape landscape maintenance options. 
options, installation options, and layout options there. Um, so we have a lot of ways, to, or a couple of ways to begin with us, and then we can really help with a lot of different kinds of landscape issues. And everything we do, first of all, I want to say, we focus on the health of water, water quality. We focus on the health of the soil and of pollinators. So from there, we can really start folks off with organic lawn care, uh, organic garden installation, and then we can help folks understand how walkways, patios, and retaining walls can be installed and designed um, so that uh, they help us direct and channel the water into the landscape so that it gets filtered by our clean, healthy soils. Right. So some people may have problems, especially since it's been more wet because the weather's unpredictable. So wet basement, but landscaping can help sometimes in some situations with those wet basement problems. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually at the Home and Garden Show too, we had a few folks uh, reaching out to us with changing water issues in their landscapes, you know, so shorelines rising, other issues. Um, so that's when we would send Tom out to really take a look at structural issues around the house as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and we love looking at uh, challenging landscape projects um, and then uh, using the um, kind of wisdom of healthy soil and, and plants uh, and their capacities oftentimes to solve a lot of problems for us in addition to making sure the grade is correct and that we're installing walkways, uh, retaining walls and patios that are laid out in a way to direct the water wisely into the ground. Yeah, I, I love this testimony in your, about installing a butterfly garden along a fence with an area that was difficult to mow. And now um, absolutely loves watching the monarchs, the butterflies, and the bumblebees dance around the yard. And we actually do have, um, I think it's Heather Holmes' book with the, the bee watching book. And you can actually watch the bees. They have different cycles. They're fun to watch. It's kind of about having a living landscape. Oh, yeah. I love how you just put that, too. And that living landscape, something about those butterfly gardens that's amazing is folks will call us that afternoon. The garden goes in in the morning, and in the afternoon they say, we've got monarchs already. It's incredible, and it happens a lot. We'll show up with the plants on site, and bees, swallowtail, uh, butterflies, <laughs> monarchs will start coming on in right away. I, I don't understand exactly how they do it, but it's, it's uncanny. That is sweet. That's really sweet. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, well, only filaments, uh, some of the specific uh, plants that are good for uh, the Polonaise, uh, the Blazing Star. That, uh, oh, yes. yes, Blazing Star. So Blazing Star is one of the three mega monarch magnets that we like to call them. Um, Blazing Star will and, – and this is specifically – folks should understand there's a lot of different kinds of Blazing Star out there. But the meadow Blazing Star will have – the monarchs lined up around the block, <laughs> buying tickets, trying to get onto those flowers. It's incredible how much they love them. The rest of the Blazing Stars are pretty good. But then the other two mega monarch magnets? Joe Pie Weed is one of my favorites. And then that's a nice taller plant, so I like to put that in stands towards the back, back of the garden. Joe Pie Weed is so beautiful. I love that one. And then, of course, everybody knows... That what does every monarch butterfly need to start its life? Milkweed. Milkweed. Of course, yes, wonderful. And, you know, we were out talking with sixth graders this week at Coon Rapids Middle School about how we can grow healthy pollinator habitat. And um, I would ask that question, what uh, what plant do the, do the monarchs need? And in, inevitably in each class, some students knew. 
yeah. already in sixth grade. And uh, certainly by the end of the class, they all knew that we all need that milkweed in our landscape. And it's really be, to be careful about where you buy plants because the mm. whole problem with neonics and some mm-hmm. of the chem- – they put a lot of chemicals in the plants you can buy in some places. Yeah. So it's actually adding a more toxic burden to your soil. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the uh, organizations that we work with for nursery stock is Outback Nursery, Mm -hmm. and they actually uh, operate a bird sanctuary there on site, and many of their seeds, uh, their seed stock and everything comes from, you know, a a really close regional area. Yeah, they don't use any pesticides, no no chems. What you got to watch out for especially are, um, you know, the big box stores. And the plants they have there, uh, I won't say I won't name any names, but you got to watch out for those big box stores um, and and move towards the smaller retailers, uh, the native plant nurseries, Outback, like Chesney mentioned, Landscape Alternatives is another one of my favorites there in Schaefer, Minnesota. Uh, you know, the Friends School plant sale. Ah, I love the Friends School. <laughs> an enormous job of they've actually helped transition a few local nurseries in Minnesota uh, away from the use of pesticides because they buy so many. So because of them, South Cedar Nursery, which we're be, we buy a lot of plants from, doesn't use any pesticides now either because uh, Friends School demanded that they they stop using them. So it's pretty pretty amazing stuff. And I would like to kind of wrap that back together and say that last year – we performed a pilot on the Friends School campus, which is shared with the St. Paul Public Housing Authority to transition them and their campus to organic in the lawn there for the kids. Good stuff. We need to hear more good stuff. So your website, i got to make sure we get your website in and how our listeners can connect with you. Yep, MinnehahaFallsLandscape.com. There's a lot of great information out there, some fun blog posts and information on healthy soil, pollinator habitat, and then, of course, the Contact Us form. So you can reach us there. We'd be glad to come out for a consultation, walk through your landscape, and, and identify what your needs are. And just as you guys have been ambassadors for um, 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 chemical-free parks, I think our listeners can also be ambassadors for you. And so even if you don't need a landscape for right now, maybe your neighbor does or maybe someone's talking about it on a next-door neighbor app or some other social media, connect and link them. You know, let's let's create the community we want to communicate, we want to raise in, especially we may be facing some tough times. So how do we bind together and, and, and create an alternative, right? Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. I appreciate that. And then, too, just to extend the offer, we're always glad to consult with other practitioners as well, be it lawn care, gardens, you know, and, and to really talk about how we can transition their operations to regenerative so that we can protect their staff and clients as well. Right, because if somebody else is using chemicals, it's also affecting us, We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Yeah, and if we start uh, really loving each other and (laughs) loving the ground and the soil too, we can make sure and just, you know, protect one another out there in the environment. Yeah. A thousand ways ways to kneel and kiss the earth. We all do better when we all do better. Mm, I love that. I do too. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice. Thanks so much, Russ and Chesney. And uh, thank you for listening. Get outside. Get outside. Enjoy life. It goes by so fast. Soak up some sunlight. Soak Mm. up some sun.